0: It's like it's like <laughs> right. yeah. So so Wednesday we have the Lord's Supper. There's a very brief sermon and like one song, but it's mostly um, a readings and um, the sacrament is the, really the high point of that. And we have confession. So um, if you're desperate and you and you can't make it to Sunday and you're available, I mean that's a real limited group of with a working with a with a, a congregation that's a lot of working people. We real, we realize that, but. A lot of the older people were looking for a midweek option too. So like, here you go, smaller crowds. We still have people who are concerned about crowds. So even in this service with like 40 people in the sanctuary, sit in the back, we had two ladies, back row, mask. They don't commune. (laughs) Like, 2022, like, they come come around, right? Um, Anyway, so today my goal is to cover the second and third... Uh, article of the creed. So I think we covered the first article of the creed for two weeks. And um, so I covered in one article of two weeks. It makes logical sense that I can cover two articles in one week. So the second, as we, as we remember the, the Apostles' Creed, the really expressing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, confessing what they, who they are and what they do. Um, Father as a creator, Son as redeemer, the one who died for us and Holy Spirit who sanctifies. So holy, where we get our word for all the holy stuff. So in church, like right before the, the words of institution, we sing the Sanctus. With angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name evermore, praising you and saying, holy, holy. That's called the Sanctus. So the Latin sonc, it's like sanctuary, the, holy, the big holy room, sanctify, to make holy. So whenever you write, and, and really it's where we get our word for saint, holy ones, um, so you're kind of looking for this, that Latin root. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit as the sanctifier, what would you think that means? The one who makes, makes holy. Makes us holy. So we'll come to that. So let's um, just because we're uh, working through the catechism. If you brought your small catechism, cool. If you did not, it's in the hymnal or the Bible. So grab one of the mini books in front of you. Where do we determine the small the small catechism was in the hymnal? Anybody remember? Two or 323, 322, three twenty three, three twenty two, three three twenty three in the in the hymnal. Or just flip to the beginning of your, the opening part of your of your catechism. It's all there. Our daughter has taken over
1: one of our Luther's catechisms. She ganked
0: it. Yeah, because she's um, her weekly Bible memory is the commandments. Good. So she's been stealing one of our books and like going through the Ten Commandments. Good. So we were leaving with both of them tonight, and Brie was like, "Oh no, can you leave one here? I need." <laughs> I'm like, oh, sure. oh, it's all the same. Like we, the. The text is all over the place. We've got it in all these different books, right? Um, the the helpfulness of the small catechism, the the greater book, as we mentioned before, is all the questions and answers in the back. Like when the kids are going through it in confirmation class, uh, one of the things that pa- Pastor Barton is the main uh, teacher for confirmation, in the junior high level. It's like a weekly, like homework based on a chief part. So the idea, the ideal situation, Dad sits down with the kids, like goes over the homework and their job is to kind of comb through here looking for the questions but going through that is just to expose them to the deeper questions of the catechism that isn't necessarily addressed in the, um, in the basic 32 page introduction so um, yeah, no, no problem there. Let's see. Um, second article of the Creed on page 322 regarding redemption as the Creed confesses it and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. So a lot is kind of crammed in there. And then, as the as the meaning gets at it, what does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God. Begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. So that's to kind of start off on your hand out there. It's not just that he's a Lord or the Lord, but he's my Lord. So the whole the gospel uh, for Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of sins is uh, it's important that it be for youified. If I can make up a, a word there. So it's like the, the whole concept of the Lord's Supper. It, it is the true body and blood of Christ for, for you, delivered to you. So it's done on your behalf. Because the devil also believes that Jesus is true God and true man. He also believes that he died on the cross. The one thing that's lacking in the devil is that he, it happened for, for the benefit of the devil, Right? Obviously, it wasn't done for the benefit of the devil, but the idea of this, bring, it's not just knowledge of Jesus doing these things that saves, but it's, it's knowledge of it for me, for my personal benefit, so that he's not just a Lord, but he's, he's my Lord, my King. Um, and we'll swing back to that. So the two natures of Christ is an important thing. Lots of blood was spilled over this, and lots of ink spilled over it, lots of debates Um, Santa Claus famously punched um, Arius in the face over this. If you're familiar familiar with your St. Nicholas history, run across that. So St. Nick, jolly owned St. Nicholas, was actually saint, St. Nicholas, and I forget which which century. So when they're duking out what we know today as the Nicene Creed, St. Nicholas was actually standing firm on the the two natures of Christ, where Arius was the main heresy that was big on Jesus was the first created being of God the Father, but not equal to. So he's not, he's not willing to say Jesus was God or is God. And so they got into a fist fight. And so St. Nicholas famously punched Arius in the face, which is not exactly the way we picture St. Nicholas, but there's some really cool church history you can write, read on Santa Claus. <laughs> but why does it matter? Why is it important that Jesus be both true God and true man? So that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and yet born of the Virgin Mary. So he had to be a little bit of both. Not just a little bit, he had to be all both. So he walked walked the kids through the heresies, especially like third and fourth grade is when they're kind of working this thing out, which we never really understand it we just kind of get a better sense of confessing how the Bible puts it. So if Jesus is, if, just, if, he's, if he's just a man, yes, he died on the cross, and that's terrible, and especially since he was innocent when he did it. But lots of people died on the cross, and arguably, some people died on the cross innocently, right, for things that they were unjustly accused of. Their death doesn't pay for the sins of anyone. Even those who were guilty when they were crucified, their, their death pays for their own sins, at least temporarily, right? So Jesus dying on the cross isn't somehow, somehow salvation-giving in and of itself. He had to have been true God because as true God, when Jesus dies on the cross on Good Friday, so what gets all the credit on Good Friday is his, his actually dying. We're kind of... All the momentum of Holy Week leading up to the death of Jesus on the cross. He died on the cross for me. We really, obviously, it's important that Jesus died, but the big thing that happens on the cross is actually his being forsaken by God. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where the skies go black, and, the, and we got three hours of Jesus giving this cry of dereliction, and the skies are black, and there's this like, basically silence and pain of Jesus suffering in three hours the, the wrath of hell for all eternity for everyone in the world. Like that's the price that's being paid in those three hours that we can't see. I mean, the scriptures kind of um, portray, well, I, I would argue, I think Luther makes the case that I mean, Jesus could have come into the world and died at any particular time. So why that time in that era? I mean, God, God knew why. But certainly the, the, method, the method by which Jesus was killed, the crucifixion, yes, it was prophesied that it was going to be hung on the tree, like Moses talked about that. But... We gotta remember the reason why it was prophesied in the Old Testament was because it was going to happen on the cross. Like that was always the plan. It wasn't that Jesus decided to die on the cross because the prophets talked about it, but it's the other way around. Jesus was always going to die on the cross. And it might be that the crucifixion is arguably one of the worst, the worst pain, the worst deaths that a person could conceive of dying. To give us a glimpse of the wrath that he was paying for that we couldn't see. So the, the pain and suffering that could be seen on the cross was only a, a glimpse into the deeper suffering that's happening in that three hours as, as he's paying a price that only God could pay. That is paying the eternal punishment for sin for not just one person, but for everyone. So then he says, uh, in one of my buddies, and I, and I argue with this, With uh, in fact, last week, me and Bartons were arguing about this in a good way, not Santa Claus, Arius way, but um, the, it's, it's held by some, and I'm convinced by this, that when Jesus is dying on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, one of the, one of the distinguishing characteristics of God is that he knows all things, omniscience, right? So doesn't, of all people, doesn't Jesus know why he's doing this? He's been talking about it. He's, he's, he's kind of been preaching this all along leading up to the cross. So why is it that now that he's actually dying on the cross, he, he wonders why he's being forsaken when he knew it was necessary all along, even in the garden of Gethsemane the night before, let this cup pass from me. So he knew it was going to be bad. He knew he was getting into why the why, and uh, any any speculation? was that for our benefit, just to, to state it? So how would that benefit us? You could see this offering. Would that be the man part? Yeah, the true man part? Well, I think we're all kind of hovering around the same the same answer, and and I think the way the way that uh, one of my buddies puts it is when. When we suffer, like for example, if, if I was able to like, if, if there was like an accident about to occur with if my, my daughter was running into the street, or God forbid, or something terrible, and I'm able to like jump in front of the car and get her out of the way, and, I'm, and I now I'm like recovering in the hospital this whole time, I'm, and I'm in this pain, but I'm in this pain, what, as I'm suffering this particular pain, I'm comforted because I know the benefactor of my pain. Does that make sense? In hell, there is no comfort. Remember how Lazarus, the gospel reading from a few weeks ago, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, rich man is in hell and he's longing for Lazarus to come down and even dip his finger in the water and touch his tongue. So there's no, there's no comfort in hell. It's all hopeless, eternal suffering. So for Jesus to have the comfort of knowing that he's suffering for us and that he's taking his, the punishment upon himself would be actually comfort that hell does not have. There's no, there's no hope of it ending. There's no. So it's held by some that perhaps on the cross, in his, in his divine nature, he's able to actually even shield from himself why it's even happening, to actually intensify all the more the level, of, the level of wrath. Now, I mean, I, that's total speculation, right? But it helps kind of, it, it makes sense logically, why the why? Um, but in any case, he's suffering the wrath of God on our behalf fully. And he's only able to suffer for us fully because he needed to be fully human, just like we are. Hence, he needed to be born of woman. But if he's born of woman and man, he carries with him original sin, which as we talked about before, dead tree, dead fruit, right? So if he's born in original sin, he's gonna, he's gonna already be born a sinner. So Jesus had to be born without sin and not, so neither original sin or active sin. So he's born of woman, so he's able to be fully human and fully take our place. So he, to take upon himself the temptations that we take upon, our, that we face, but also to die in the same way that we die. So he had to be, a, he had to be like us in every way to be our substitute. I think I, there's Bible verses on your handout that I've skipped over to, like, uh, yeah, D, Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 5, down number four, letter D, Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect have intended as we are yet without sin. So it's important that he's without sin, if found in our likeness and see there. So that's... Um, that's why the two natures. That's why both God and man. You can see by the Holy Spirit, um, born of the Virgin Mary. So the virgin birth is one of those, one of those things is often rejected by because um, it's just the same reason why we reject anything that doesn't mesh with our with our current post-Enlightenment scientific views. So what we typically do is say, If we're holding a certain opinion today, according to science, so, for example, resurrections from the dead don't happen. So when we look at the Bible and we see a resurrection from the dead, obviously the resurrection didn't happen. So there's there's helpful things that we can glean from the teachings of Jesus, but a bodily resurrection, come on. Feeding the 5,000, eh. Love your neighbor as yourself, I can go with that. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. I can see a benefit in teaching my kids that. But when we get into, like, virgin births, mm. that's sketch, right? So that's, when, we give in, when we're giving the, the Apostles' Creed, we're actually confessing this God working through the Holy Spirit to conceive in Mary Jesus uh, as true man and yet also true God. Is my Lord, who has redeemed me, that is, has paid the paid the price for me, bought me back. Not not that he bought us from the devil, as though the devil ever owned us, uh, or ever have the power to do so, but to buy us back from really the the cost of what our sins deserve to 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 pay. That is eternal wrath. So he paid the price that we deserve to pay, so he bought us back, redeemed us. A lost and condemned person under the law purchased me. He won me from everything, all sins, death, and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, obviously, but with his blood, holy, precious, most innocent suffering and death. Why did he do it? That I would belong to him, that I would be his own and live under him in his kingdom. So to be his own, we talk about this in baptism with the name part. So God puts his name upon us in holy baptism in the same way that um, libraries like to put And churches, they apparently put their name on the inside of books so they don't so they don't walk off, right? This book belongs to Bethany's youth room, right? So you put your name on your kids' lunch boxes so you don't get it confused with the other kids or water or whatever. So you put your name on what belongs to you. We belong to Jesus. He put his name on us in holy baptism, we belong to him. He's redeemed me, he's bought me back, he's named me as his own, I belong to him, and now I live under him in his kingdom. And in this life as a Christian who's been redeemed by Christ, I've I've been bought back from sin, death, and the devil, and now I'm set free from those terrible things. But my life of freedom is actually characterized by serving him, which is kind of a weird thing. So that we often we often stick servanthood and slavery together. So for me to be a for me to serve him makes it sound like I'm in bondage to him in some way. But rather, this is a life of, the life of the Christian is one that's set free from sin, death, and the devil and is set free to live in this world, which is a life of serving my neighbor in love, seeing my neighbor as a gift to me from God, um, seeing my whole life as a gift from God. So like all of our stuff, all of our time, it's been given to me as a gift from God. As a, as a, now I'm a steward in a way. So everything that's before me, I'm able to use it and dole it out to my, to my family. Give my time to my, to my friends, to my community. Give my money to my friends, to my community, my family. I take, take, so I'm, I'm stewarding this out. It's a gift that I'm sharing with others, right? Um, Set so serving him in his kingdom uh, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity. Eternity, this is most certainly true. Now a couple of things on your handout, just to kind of, kind of gloss through there. Um, you often hear the incarnation, like we at Christmas time we, we talk about the incarnation. Oh, then I give one. Oh, sorry, I skipped one. You gotta jump in. Hey, I didn't get a handout, Pastor. Come on, could be a slacker. Thanks, Beth. Uh, incarnation. When I, when I teach it to the... When I try to be hashtag relevant for the youth, um, you go you to Taco Bell and you get a carne asada burrito. Right? So what's a carne asada? Meat. So look at the middle of the word incarnation. You see carne. So it's God becoming meat. Into, the, into meat. And that's John 1.14. The word... The word, remember, at creation, that was, so God spoke, let there be light, and, and the, the spoken word itself was Jesus. This, this un unpersoned Jesus, un, disembodied, is that the word? Un, not yet bodied Jesus is the spoken word of God, now becoming flesh, in John 1, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. So um, when you think back to the Old Testament, when God would make Himself present for the people of Israel in the in the tabernacle before they built the temple, they're kind of wandering in the wilderness, and they got this like gigantic tabernacle they're constantly building, and God's presence was in there. Moses would go in there, and like he'd come out glowing like he was nuclear, and so he'd have to start wearing a veil on his face because he's freaking out the kids, and like this idea of the presence of God, this glowing holy presence of God being with Israel. As so they're wandering, remember the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, everywhere they go. And that same word, tabernacle, is this John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So now that, that, that holy presence of God from the Old Testament has made himself known in the person of Jesus. And that same Jesus has made himself present with us. So he continues to tabernacle with us even now, as we bear his name in holy baptism. So he's promised to be with us always. He makes himself present in the Lord's Supper for the forgiveness of sins, just as he was in the tabernacle. So his name, you run across lots of different names of Jesus, number three there. The name Jesus, this is cool. This is like every Christmas Eve, like, so he, one of the challenges of a pastor is Christmas Eve and Easter morning are like, you want to go to bat. Like, that's like, the best, the best day to preach ever. And the problem is, like, this, the message is the same every year. The texts are always the same, and the, the crowd is always the same, like it's a, visit, a lot of visitors and so forth, but you can't say anything that different. So it's always a challenge, and you want to get creative, but the problem is if you try to get creative with, I mean, God's Word is pretty sufficient in itself, so... The goal is to get out of the way. So, if you hear me preach on Christmas Eve, I probably will say the same thing as I always do, and that's tying together this, the prophecy of Jesus being the Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it's weird because remember the angels, the angels say He will be Emmanuel. Let me flip over to Matthew. Look at it. So I have both your text. They're both in Matthew one, or two verses apart. Matthew one twenty one. It's like maybe a quarter from the from the back in the New Testament, Matthew 121, page, where is it in the company-issued Bible, 807, the birth of Jesus took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. In the scriptures, constantly, names are always tied to what the names mean. So like, not, so like, for, for example, in uh, Psalm 51, whenever David is confessing creating me a clean heart, O God, because of his sin, sin against Bathsheba, if you remember the story there, David has killed Uriah the Hittite and had an affair with Bathsheba, and this is all wrapped up in terrible sins. And then God sends the prophet Nathan to speak the law to David so that he'd repent. And what you kind of catch is what you can miss in English is that the prophet's name is Nathan. Nathan is the Hebrew word for gift. So it all makes so you are able to see God sending Nathan as this as this gift to David to bring him to repentance so that he would be saved. And so we, we our whole understanding of repentance is one of seeing it as a gift from God, because his very being is tied up in, in his name, Nathan, as a gift, who brings repentance. So Jesus is the same way. His name, Jesus, means he saves, so that's what he does. He saves. Okay, well, that makes sense, because we, we call him Jesus, but it's weird, because when you got an angel, he says, his name's going to be Jesus, because he'll save his people from his sins, but then all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Wait a second. As this is fulfilling what the prophet said, wouldn't it make sense to name him Emmanuel? So it's just kind of God and man, right? <laughs> you can have two That's right. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's one way to go about. it. You can have two names, right? But so think about it like this: for for him to be, for him to be Emmanuel, for God to be with us. He is God, so He is with us. Wait, well, that's true. Yeah. If God is with us, is that always good news? It's supposed to be. Right? We only know we know it is good news because we we cannot comprehend God apart from Jesus. But if, if you take Jesus out of the formula, how are we to understand God but one of wrath? Well, he was pretty wrathful in the Old Testament. We still wrathful now. I mean, outside of Christ, God is holy. God is, God is this holy consuming fire, and like anything that's outside of Christ is consume, Outside of holiness is consumed by this thing. But we only know God according to mercy and grace because He's because of Jesus. So this is the point: for God to be with us as Emmanuel and not destroy us is to be is because Jesus saves us. So his, his ability to be Jesus is also wrapped up in his being Emmanuel. God, God is with us, and why is he with us? Not to judge us, not to condemn us, but God is with us to, to save us. So that's Jesus uh, and Emmanuel at the same time. Uh, he's referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 1.29, when John the Baptist points him out after his baptism, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which makes no sense unless you're coming out of the Jewish context, and you've grown up slaughtering lambs on Passover all along. And and every year you're hearing the story of the Passover, the blood of the Passover lamb covering the, the doorpost, and the angel of death passes over. So all of that, every Passover, all the blood that was shed was always pointing to this coming lamb of God, so that the the blood would be put on God's people and the angel of death, eternal death, would pass over. And then the Messiah, uh, the, the anointed one, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the, the chosen one, the anointed one that is to be, to be set apart by God for this, for this specific purpose, to save his people. There's his names. Um, some, of the, some of the key um, terms, like in uh, number four and five, when we, when we think about Jesus as king, as my Lord, my king, when you picture a king, like I always, my brain always goes to like the 1993 Aladdin movie when, when Aladdin comes riding in because he's made a wish to be a, to be a prince and like uh, Robin Williams' genie has him like riding in a giant elephant to all this music and like tons of people and tons of money and like it's all this great picture of tremendous power. And so that's the expected Messiah, that he was going to come in and destroy the Romans and overcome any kind of oppression by way of power and force. And really, that's the way we still try to deal with each other to this day. Like the, that's our natural disposition as, as fallen humanity. So Jesus comes, and he flicks, flips everything upside down. And when he is at his most, when Jesus is being most king for us, what is he doing? cross. What is written over his head? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. So, so Jesus is doing the most, and arguably his most powerful thing. So the most powerful thing that he's doing is, from the world's viewing of it, the weakest thing a person can do is to, to, to not only die, but die at the hands of others. Uh, and this is true throughout his entire ministry. Like he rides in. He rides in the week of his death. He rides in not on a on a horse, but on a donkey. Have you ever ridden a donkey? We we had a we have a we used to raise a, my my family raises quarter horses and uh, miniature horses. So it's not as cool for me to ride miniature horses these days because I'll kill them. But uh, when I was little, uh, we had a donkey. Named Bill because we had him back in like the Bill Clinton years. Say <laughs> saying: these are facts; these aren't opinions. Um, so, but so we we put we'd always put like anybody who didn't know how to ride a horse, we put him on Bill, and it was the most miserable experience. So that he's like all bone and totally uncomfortable, and jerky, and bouncy, and he didn't actually want to lead, you have to like pull him, and he fight back, and that's what donkeys are famous for, being stubborn, right? So, it's just absolutely terrible. So why would, to ride in on a donkey? It's like this lowly position of weakness, so versus like, if you watch Lord of the Rings, the guys who are riding in, the riders of Rohan, riding in on the horses, and just destroying, sorry, I just, I just binged watch Lord of the Rings last week, so it's fresh in <laughs> my mind. Um, so this, this, this is like war power. It's the cavalry coming in and wiping people out. So Jesus taking this position of weakness, born, born not in, in a palace, which is actually where Herod expected him to be. Or no, the wise men expected him to be there, remember? So the wise men see the star from afar and they go following it and they get up to Jerusalem and they lose it. And so obviously, if we, so we follow the star here, obviously it's gonna be in the Capitol building. So find the biggest building with the most gold in it, and that's where this king is going to be born. He's the king, right? No, he's not there. He's going to be in Bethlehem. And so they go and they find him in Bethlehem, which is a tiny, dilapidated village with nobody in it. And not just was he in that village, but he's born out in a stable. Which that's an interesting, that's actually another Christmas Eve sermon I might, I might brush off again this year. Think about this. If you've got family coming to town on Christmas Eve and one of and your, your house is slammed, like fast forward like 20 years and you've got all the kids back in town. Kids, grandkids, packed house. They all brought their dogs, obviously. It's crazy, but then like your cousin automatically sh- just shows up out of nowhere and, and she's pregnant. Like, I wish we, can't, we can't get a hotel, it's slammed. What are you gonna, you say, son? You're sleeping on the floor, or I'll sleep on the floor. You take my, you know what I mean? Like, she's pregnant, and she's like teenage. What do you, how do you not take these people in? So when when Joseph and Mary ride into, ride into Bethlehem on Christmas, Eve, what well, we know it's Christmas Eve, he's going home. Remember, all, they all were called to go to their hometown to, to do the census, yeah, for the taxes, right? So, but it's not a big town. I mean, if Naperville, if you're from Naperville, like, yeah, you could probably sneak by getting through. Like, if you came back to town after years away, you might not see anyone. But, like, I'm from, I'm from kind of a small suburb of Mississippi, and there's lots of suburbs around there. But, dadgummit, every time I go down, you kind of you can't sneak into Walmart without seeing somebody from way back when. And that's in a huge, relatively huge suburban town in Mississippi. Now, Granted, it's Walmart in Mississippi, so everybody goes there. Right? <laughs> but, like, my point is in Bethlehem, there's only like 20 people, and they've all grown up in that town. So not only does everybody know everybody, but everyone's related. So when Joseph comes into town with Mary, and she's pregnant, and they say there's no room in the inn. By the way, there's not a holiday inn in Bethlehem because there's no, the, the, our concept of hotels does not exist. It was simply the word for like guest, the guest room where like, My son used to live, but now he moved, and so he got this extra room in the house. There's no room for family in the Jewish culture? I mean, think about how they're portrayed in every, like this strong family. So what was the problem? Why are they not letting him into the house? There's not room in the end. Boom. So not only was Jesus born, not only born like in poverty of the manger, but born in in this total position of shame and rejection by the whole community and family, Oh. And, and at Christmas, too, we're like, oh, family is all together. So it's this beautiful picture of everything that Jesus takes on is one of lowliness and rejection in the eyes of this world. So he has a crown, but it makes him bleed, right? Crown of thorns. So everything Jesus is doing is flipping upside down. And, um, and he's doing it all toward our forgiveness, right? So think about how then we, in our life of, of Christians with one another, we are also to forgive one another. But forgiving is, in many, in many cases, the hardest thing to do. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, I think, where when someone says they're sorry, they're coming to you in humility because kind of, they become vulnerable at that point because you can reject them. But for you to say, I forgive you, is acknowledging that you've been hurt, right? Right? it's easier to say there's no need for an apology because there's no wrong done here. You can't hurt me because I'm unhurtable, right? So to say that I forgive you is actually this position of weakness. So that's kind of what Jesus is modeling for us is coming in weakness and lowliness, putting us before himself, total self-sacrifice, dying for those who don't deserve it, and and that's our God, that's our king. And of course, he does it all to destroy sin, death, and the devil, and he rises again from the dead. But, I mean, we, it's easier for us to see that now. But at the time when the disciples didn't pick up on it, can you blame them? They're expecting this general king to write in. So that's uh, number 4A and B. Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why our divine service, our, our uh, worship, on Sundays, is called the divine service. And it's, it's God who serves us. Divine, God, service, Him serving us. He came not for us to serve Him, but for Him to serve us. And then 1 Corinthians 1, which is one of my favorite, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So God comes to us in weakness to save us. Uh, a couple more concepts, I'll try to go through these quickly because I've got to cover a whole third article decree. Um you've heard of the uh, the, the blessed exchange, or Luther called it the the sweet swap, and as it comes out of the German. So all we have is the rotten tree, dead fruit picture, and Jesus has perfect tree, holy fruit. He's fully holy and righteous, and we are fully sinful and, and unrighteous. And Jesus takes upon himself all that we are and gives us all that he is. So he takes our sin upon himself and puts his holiness upon us, this exchange. So as Luther called it, the blessed or the great exchange, the substitutionary. He becomes our substitute and gives us all of his holiness. The picture of objective justification, if you've, if you've heard that, if you're lifelong Lutherans, Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession, the, church, the article upon which the church stands or falls is the article of justification. This is the line in the sand where the Catholics, like, at the point of the Reformation, when we're like, all right, we believe in God, we believe in Jesus, we believe in sin. Um, also, we believe that we're, we're justified uh, apart from works. We're justified by Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. And that's where the Catholics are like, hold on, that's heresy, now we're duking it out. So here's object, it's called objective. So not within me, but it's, it's outside of myself. Objective justification is to be declared righteous. Which is is different than me actually being righteous. So I I know, we we know our own sin, our sinful lives and actions and thoughts and past and shame and all the guilt that we have. We look in the mirror and we know the sinners that we are. And then God looks at us and says, no, you're righteous. Like, that doesn't make sense. So the, the best way that we have to understand this is uh, courtroom language. So if you're on trial for something, we'll say murder, and you know that you've committed murder, and you're, you're well aware of this, and now you're on trial for it, and here comes the, the judge is looking at you. All the evidence is stacked up against you from the prosecuting attorney, and um, all the, which by the way, that's Satan's role. Satan means accuser. So there's Satan bringing all the evidence against you. And you know that you're guilty. Everyone knows that you're guilty. The evidence is so, so clear. And you're ready to just all but confess I did all this stuff. And the, the, the judge looks at you and says, not guilty. Now, in the court of law, what happens when the judge says, you're not guilty? You're not guilty. It no matter, doesn't matter what the evidence says. It's objective Declaring of innocence. Now, to actually finish that analogy, it's Jesus is actually the one who steps in the way. and so, so the judge says, you're guilty on behalf of him. So Jesus takes our guilt and he goes and pays for it and we're declared innocent. But it's, it's objectively declared to us. And the reason why that's so helpful is it's done apart from us. We have no no claim on it, like it's something that I did or I was able to earn on my own, but it's declared to me because of Christ alone, simply by grace, apart from anything within me. Object of justification. Pontius Pilate in the Creed, crucified under Pontius Pilate is um, one of my favorite phrases in in the small catechism, because... It's the one line, if you look at the second article of the Creed on page 322, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why, why Pontius Pilate? He's like this random other character. Of all the other characters in the Bible you could, you could have come up with, Pontius Pilate's the one you grabbed. There's a lot, a lot more fun people that you could have like, worked into the Creed. Why Pontius Pilate? Yeah, so it's like there, there's, a, there's a strain in church history that tries to get Pontius Pilate off the hook. The problem is he's still guilty for it, right? So he's in that position of he could have. Ultimately, it worked out to our benefit that he, that he let Jesus be crucified. So my, it's not that we're trying to get Pontius Pilate off the hook or give him any kind of credit for this, but it's the line Pontius Pilate is the one line in the creed that separates our faith in Jesus from once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away or once upon a time in a land far away there was a cinderella living in a castle with all so like all of the fairy tale all of the sci-fi genre all every everything that we enjoy in the artificial land of fiction is not at 1550 modaf road in 2022 there was a unicorn that walked across the parking lot oh, wait a second if if it's true that a unicorn walked across a parking lot, on such and such a day, like let's prove it. Where to find me somebody who saw? I can actually go find people who saw the unicorn. It's historical. It grounds it in. It grounds it in ancient exactly in ancient in ancient Jerusalem, at a time, Pontius Pilate, which pulls it out of this land of fiction. And now it's not just I believe in Zeus. And yet, Zeus is, doesn't ever claim to be in our time, right? Or any other kind of deity, but this is actually a... It's, it's, it's begging to be falsified. This is like the, every lawyer's dream. Like the, the, exactly. So, apologetics is the, the, uh, the task of making a case for the, the Christian faith, making a defense for the hope that we have, and... Um, We've got Dr. Adam Francisco is a huge uh, apologetics professor in, in our synod. He's a member of our church. And um, we'll talk, maybe we'll talk about apologetics in a later day, but that's basically making a defense for the faith like the, that it actually happened, that Jesus actually existed, that the Bible is actually reliable and all that kind of stuff. Um, let's skip ahead because we've got like 15 minutes left. Um, the... Uh, the two, our two like evangelicals, um, or maybe three, the three evangelical people aren't here. So we'll skip over the final judgment. If you ever, if you ever run into that, like you ever watch the Left Behind series like in the 90s with Kurt Cameron? Um, the whole concept of, <laughs> that's our first date. The, the, whole, the whole idea of this being this, the rapture, so if, it's weird. Like when you talk about the end times, there's basically three main views of how the the last day shape shakes out, and it's it's really revealing to a person's like entire theological system. But someone who has, I think it's called, like postmillennialism. There's there's like pre pre-millennial, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. These, these all view of the end times, and um, it's I, I mentioned it briefly on Sunday's Bible study, but it's it's all trying to make a lot of, uh, draw a lot of conclusions from limited verses like Revelation 20 and a couple places in, in Matthew, especially in times text. But in, all, in every case, it's almost trying to make the, make the case that there's going to be this secret return of Christ where, he, where he, pulls out, he pulls out believers and leaves everybody else to kind of like prove their faith for a while. Um, a lot of it's kind of infused with this this view of the Jewish people or the select people that even though they don't believe in Jesus, they're still God's chosen people. And so there's a special place for the actual, the city of, the nation of Israel. I like guess why you'll see like evangelicals getting really like gung-ho about Israel's independence and stuff's happening in Israel and therefore they're really wrapped up in the, the theological significance of what's happening in Israel. And we're like scratching our heads like, I don't, pastor doesn't care what's, what's happening here. So it's just different views of what the end times will be. But as we confess it in the creed, so we on, on the last day Jesus comes back. And if we're still alive, cool. We don't die. So that that was always my confusion. I thought Jesus comes back and we die. But the scriptures don't say that. We're just called up. Um, the bodies are our bodies are in the ground, raise up for those who are dead. Souls, the souls that have been in heaven, Jesus says, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." So the souls that have already died are actually reunited with the body on the last day. Bodies are perfected, and then we stand for the final judgment. Which, for those who are already believers, it's like not a surprise. They've been in heaven this whole time. So now bodies are, they're kind of just there for the final judgment to get news that they, that they aren't surprised by. But Jesus lays out the, the parable of the sheep and the goats. So the judgment on the last day will be a judgment according to works. The difference will be, for the Christian... Remember the great exchange, the sweet swap for the Christian? I stand before God with my my hands and pockets totally empty of any goodness in myself, yet I've been filled up, filled up by all the goodness of Jesus. And so I'm, I'm declared innocent, righteous, enter into my kingdom. I, but the sheep didn't know, when did I do all these good things? And Jesus says, you did. You did. For those who stand before Jesus on their own merits and say, look, I, I did, when did I not visit you in prison? When did I not do all these things? Jesus sends them to hell. Because ultimately, you're not going to stand on your own. It's not going to be good enough. The law always condemns. You've never done enough. So that's, this, that's the parable of the final judgment. It ultimately has us turning fully to Jesus and, and putting everything on him for all of his grace. So that's the second article of the creed, which I... Leaves me ten minutes for the Holy Spirit. Um, Doing okay? Anything on Jesus before he... Do you remember that when you were predicting the end of the world, with the Mayan end calendar? It just reminds me of all the pictures we saw of empty clothes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you see like the bumper sticker that says, "Like in the event of the rapture, like this car will be unmanned or no." <laughs> so, so I, but but why so why you think about the 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 theological system that assumes this kind of rapture mindset it's like trying to instill in me a certain amount of fear that causes me to kind of like reconsider my life and my sin and repent and, and turn to Jesus out of a really not out of love but out of fear so when this one is since when does faith work like that? Well, oh, I better believe in Jesus because I'm too scared not to. And, right. So that's the Pascal's wager, uh just in case. But in but that's not faith, right? So God can see through any kind of bet hedging. It's like there's either faith or there's not. And this is all that's that's all a gift by the Holy Spirit anyway. So if it's if Jesus if there's like something that I need to do to make sure that I get called up on the last day, if there's like some, some more works that I need to accomplish to make sure that I'm in, then Jesus was lying when he said it is finished. So if it's finished, it's finished, which means there's nothing for me to fear. That Jesus who comes back for me on the last day is coming to simply call me out of this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. So whenever you hear the, the last... Judgment, the final judgment cast with this like fear. It's, it's always doing, notice that it's usually doing it in such a way to get you to make a decision for Jesus, or try to scare you into more obedience. And it's always done in contrast to the clear preaching of the gospel, which is, it's terrible. Now, the Holy Spirit, since we only have like five minutes, the Holy Spirit is the silent member of the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit never really talks about himself, he's always talking about Jesus. Um, this is, this is maybe the my favorite the, my favorite line in the third article decreed. So look at your catechism on three, three twenty three. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the Communion of Saints, the Forgiveness of Sins, the Resurrection of the Body, and the Life Everlasting. Amen. Notice, it doesn't or whereas Jesus, uh, the, God the Father gives some. I believe in God the Father. He made heaven and earth. So here's what he, here's who he is and here's what he de- does. The second article, and his only son, and here's all this stuff that he is and what he does. And the third article of the Creed with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't say anything about him. It's kind of like, it, it's almost like a list of all the extra things we wanted to kind of tack on at the end. I believe in all the stuff about the Father, all the stuff about the Son, and then here's a long list of like smaller things. And I, I uh, in make a case that it's, it's rather maybe better understood as a story of all the things that the Holy Spirit is doing. So I believe in the Holy Spirit who actually puts together the Christian church. He actually is one who calls the church together by his word and sacraments and creates the church on earth, which is the communion of saints, the unity of all the saints, the holy ones, who aren't holy on their own merits, but they're holy because the forgiveness of sins sins have been forgiven, and that we are made holy. And I believe that there'll be a resurrection of the body. All will be raised again on the last day, and there'll be life everlasting for those who die with faith in Jesus. So what does this mean? The best line, here it comes. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. So I believe that I can't believe. I believe that I cannot believe. So the Holy Spirit is the one that brings you. Right. Because yeah. if it's up to my own reason or my own strength believing, then that becomes a work. Something for me to do. A decision for me to make. If there's any wiggle room, if there's something left for me to do, that's precisely where I'll mess it up. So um, I mean, that's, the, that's one of the many critiques that we'd have of like decision theology that says, Jesus has done everything for you. You just need to make a decision and accept him into your heart. So now that it's all comes down to this one decision I need to make. And now I'm questioning, well, did I, did I really, was I sincere when I made that decision? I was only 13, like, and I was at a summer camp. It was a, it was like a mountaintop experience. So maybe I didn't really mean it. I mean, I was dating a girl at the time, and maybe I was influenced by the wrong reasons. So maybe maybe I'll rededicate, I'll re-accept Jesus into my heart. And this time I'll really mean it. Except for, you know what, doggone it, I, I fell into these same sins again. And if I really meant it the first time, then I wouldn't have done those same sins. So I'm constantly looking at that one thing that I thought I had to do to make sure that I was saved. So Jesus is taking away the one things. It's not up to you. I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe. Why can't I, by my own reason or strength, believe? Remember the tree? The whole thing is rotten. My will, my orig- because of original sin, I am born unable to choose anything but sin. My reason cannot understand this. My reason doesn't want it. My strength doesn't want to choose it. But, let's see, I cannot, by my reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, to come to him, But the Holy Spirit has done everything. He's called me by the gospel. So by the preaching of the word, he's called me into the faith, enlightened me with his gifts through the supper, holy communion, holy baptism, opened my eyes to the faith, sanctify that has made me holy, set me apart for God, and kept me in the true faith. So my faith is not only created by the Holy Spirit, but sustained by the Holy Spirit. And this is a tremendous comfort for the for the Christian. So the Lord is the one who's actually doing everything, even keeping me in the faith by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word. Which highlights this, the significance of hearing the Word. Right? Why, why we like uh, Pastor Clemmer's always how me to read my Bible? It's not because I want you to like, like read enough of your Bible to make God happy so that you go to heaven. It's that. It's by the, by the word, it's the thing through which the Holy Spirit is promised to work. Uh, Sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies, makes holy the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers on the last day who will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. So the church, uh, in, in, uh, in the small cult articles of the, uh, of the, the Augsburg Conf or the, uh, the Book of Concord, Luther famously says, like, in the midst of a time like our, our day and age where there's lots of confusion of what is church, everyone's got a different opinion of w- what constitutes church. Um, what do you need to have? What, who believes the right thing? And, and Luther says, even a seven-year-old knows what church is. It's where, it's where the Lord's people get together to have their sins forgiven. It's like, you know what a car wash is, because there's cars there that are getting washed. That's what, that's what a car wash is. If they're not washing cars, they're not, they're not a car wash, right? So the idea of church is wherever Jesus is, giving out the things that he won on the cross by the Holy Spirit. So he's, you, you, you can always know where the church is, you can always know where the Holy Spirit is because that's, that's where the tools are lying around. The Word and the, the Lord's Supper, the sacraments, where, where these things are, we know that's where the church is. It doesn't need walls, it doesn't need a building. Now it's convenient to have walls in a building unless you're trying to do it in hiding, like our brothers and sisters in China right now and other places who are like, don't have a place. But so, and it sets us free from, yeah, this place could burn down. It'd be super inconvenient, right? But, um, except for the rooms that I kind of want to remodel. So certain, like the narthex could totally burn down. If the insurance money, redo. <laughs> <laughs> but like, we don't need the building, right? So we're only locked up into these things. So the church is wherever the word and sacraments are going forth. Two or more gather in my name. That Where two or more gathered in my name, there I am among them. So that's so we talked about that back at the beginning. That's why we begin with the invocation in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lord has put his name upon us. He's called us together. And where he put his name, he also put his presence. Like So remember, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, uh, teaching them all that, all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I've put my name upon you and I promise to be with you. And so the Lord puts his name on us, calls us together. He's promised to be with us. And so we're able to say what what is church is where the word of sacraments are going forth that also has us understanding more of why we're going to church or we expect to get out of church what i'm looking to receive from church like i don't go to the car wash expecting to get my oil changed i go to the oil change place to get my oil changed i guess i guess fuller's does both i don't know <laughs> but so if you're if you're going but the idea is like i'm going to church to have my sins forgiven to have my faith strengthened because that's where the Holy Spirit's promised to be for me. That we can't see a person's faith. We can't see a person's heart. And we know that there's like, there's, there's both believers and non-believers or whatever come to church. We don't, we don't have to worry sorting that out. So we simply confess the faith that, 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 uh, that the church has always confessed. We say, this is what I believe about who Jesus is. And when we commune at a church, which we get to in the next couple of weeks, we're saying we believe what these other people around me believe about what Jesus is doing to me. He's forgiving my sins here. So if, you, if you've grown up in a church that um, has different expectations of what I'm expecting to get out of church, like I'm, I need to be motivated to be a better person, um, well, you're, you're not going to find that here. It's, that's going to the car wash to get a hamburger. You know, you, like We're not trying to motivate you to be a better person. We're trying to forgive your sins. Uh, there's, the Bible certainly has things to try to motivate us to be better. The law will do that, but we didn't need the church to give us more law. We already had the law. The church is about the forgiveness of sins. It's always tempting to to give more law because people want to hear it. We always want to be told, "Tell me what I can do to fix myself," and that's you're never going to be able to do it because you're you're a broken tree or rotten tree. Um, so the Maybe lastly, on uh, your handout there, the couple I wanted to highlight, maybe we're, maybe I'll get to what is the church on Acts 2 next time perhaps, but the, um, the, the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. In John 20, which is the, um, the, give, the text for confession and absolution, Jesus breathed on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven, right? So Jesus walks, it's Easter morning, not Easter evening. On the first Easter, he walks into the room. The doors are locked for fear of the Jews and the disciples. So he just kind of walks through the wall, shows up and he says, peace be with you. And he shows him his hands and his side. So he's not saying peace be with you. Just relax, stay cool. It's going to be okay. He's actually saying peace be with you. That is everything you have to worry about with God, you've been fully reconciled to God. There's no reason to panic here. Everything's been taken care of. You've been reconciled to God. That's what the hands are all about. That's why he shows them his hands. Then he breathes on them and sends them out to forgive sins, the sins that he's already paid for on the cross. He sends them out to speak that same forgiveness to others. And that's where the Holy Spirit's working in the church. The role of the Holy Spirit in the church is actually bringing that peace, delivering that forgiveness to us through the preached word. And so in a, in a world of turmoil and unpeace and chaos, this is the, the prayer of the church is always one for peace in the church, peace in our, our homes, our families, our, our, per, our persons, our individual lives, that we would have peace, which doesn't necessarily mean that I want things to stop going poorly for me. No, we, all, we also want that. <laughs> but the idea is we also know that we're always going to be facing trials. Peace is actually being able to go through the trials knowing that we're going to be okay, right? So you're going to have turbulence, if you know you're, you're going to get out of this okay, and the worst case scenario is I die, and the worst thing becomes the best thing for me. So I'm not fearing death. I'm not fearing the worst thing. Then I can get through this okay. And that, that's true peace, is being able to walk through this life. Things come, a lot of stuff happens around us. It's totally terrible. So our, the prayer, the church's prayer, and our, our own prayers to the Lord is that the Spirit would give us that peace that the world cannot give it's able to endure the storms of this life and actually be at peace when they come. So that's the the whirlwind of the Trinity. There, any? How you doing? Any creed questions or anything? No. So the church that uses decision theology would not use this creed. Um, I, I I won't say that um, most. Most Christian churches, this these days, would give some kind of credence to at least the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed has the the uh, unpopular phrase, "One baptism for the forgiveness of sins," which is rejected by a lot of uh, non-denominational evangelical type churches. The Apostles' Creed doesn't have anything that's that's like that. So, they so they, they would be able to confess the creed, and we'll see them in heaven, right? So. I'm looking forward to when I get to heaven to, get the, to tell all my Baptist cousins that I was, I was right all along and like, isn't this so much better? Like, because the, the, the fact is, it's not just that I want to be right because I, I know I'm right. I don't need that kind of... <laughs> but the, the, the idea is to go through life thinking that there's something you had to do is unbiblical. It's adding, adding anything to Jesus actually robs the Christian of, of comfort. So it's not that they can say this creed, because creed, the creed doesn't actually say, so the, the um, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord. I believe that I cannot believe. That's Luther's explanation of the Apostles' Creed. So the creed itself is, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And, and, and any Christian can give their amen to that, I think. Many of them, especially pop Pop Christian evangelical churches these days will say, "I believe in deeds and not creeds," and they don't want to like label them because if you, once you when you say, you say this is what we believe, you're offend people, right? You'll run off half, you'll run off half of the crowd. So it's just not talk. That's why if you have ever been a part of like a community Bible study, like CBS is one of them. There's other community type Bible studies. They're like pan denominational. And it's a fine idea. It's like a bunch of like moms They dropped off the kids at school. They got together on Friday mornings to study the Bible. And um, the, well, I've, I've read through these Bible studies before and they, they actually, a key verses like Romans 6, baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. It specifically avoids talking about baptism. Like you get to the words of institution. It specifically talks, it's, it avoids talking about the Lord's Supper because these are controversial things. So we avoid, it's hard to be pan-denominational and talk about anything of substance. And so a lot of times church bodies won't necessarily put the Apostles' Creed down, but it's vague enough that people can give their amen to it. Good. Anything else? Well, coming up next week is... The Lord's Prayer. So we'll cover the entire, uh, the entire Lord's Prayer in one week. So uh, bring your, bring your seatbelt and your helmets. It's going to be a wild ride. Um, no, we'll cover the Lord's Prayer. And then two weeks on baptism, two weeks on the Lord's Supper, and then we're done. So it means the year's is flying by. So if as if we're getting closer to the end, a lot of the questions for folks end up coming up at... Um, at the sacraments, especially for people coming out of other church bodies, like baptism and the Lord's Supper and confession and absolution are three three biggies that not everybody has has grown up with, or at least with the same beliefs on. So we'll try to do justice to those, but if if you have looming questions, just let me know. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come.